Okay, um, it's eight o'clock, so I think we'll start if that's all right with you, Ravaneet. Okay, so welcome everybody. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, depending on whatever time zone you're in. We're so happy to be here learning with you again for our last session um, of Emotions in Halakha with Ravaneet Victoria Sutton. As you come into the Zoom room, I will invite you to become a panelist. That just means if you wish to, you can turn on your camera so we can see your lovely smiling faces. Um, and when the Rabbinit invites questions and comments, you'll be able to unmute yourself to ask. Um, when you're not speaking, we just ask that you keep yourself on mute. It minimizes the background noise so we can all hear each other. But questions and comments are always welcome in the Zoom chat. And if you're joining us on Facebook Live, then in the Facebook comments, and I will bring them to the Zoom. Um, I'm also about to share the um, source sheet in the Zoom chat for those who don't have it up yet. And um, with that, uh, I will wish Ravneet Sutton a mazel tov on behalf of all of us because, before we start, because Ravneet Sutton was um, one of the many incredible um, women Torah scholars who uh, gained, uh, who, who were associated with Drisha, who gained a place on the Safaria Word by Word Fellowship in order to write a book of Torah scholarship. So this is our last class of emotions in Halakha, but we're so excited to continue learning and reading more of your more of your Torah in the future. <laughs> and with that, handing over to Rabbi Sutton. Thank you, Lumina. So sweet. Thank you for the um, shout out and encouragement. And hopefully I'll be sharing a lot more Torah um, in lots of different venues. Um, just in case people pop off, um, towards the end um just to highlight this is the last night of this series um next sunday night in the same spot um but i think different registration link correct i probably yeah different different registration link and um, there'll be a one-off class on the azharot in preparation of um in preparation of shavuot so azharot just to give a little background on that and then we'll jump in the topic for tonight um so um, Shavuot celebrating the receiving of the Torah. Many people are familiar with the custom of reading the Aserit Hadibot, the Ten Commandments, but actually there is um, a custom dating back to the Geonim, so several thousand years, of uh, reading poems that of the entire 613 um, mitzvot. And it's a really beautiful custom, continues till today, a custom that my family um, does every Shavuot. So it's a custom that I'm excited to share about and also some of the um, scholarship and some of the poetry behind it, like how do you take 613 mitzvot and turn it into poetry that rhymes um, and to a tune. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, and we'll sing some of it next week, um, I'd love to see you back next week. So we've been spending the last five weeks looking at different emotions in halakha. Um, we started with oneg shabbat, the idea of like what creates that shabbat feeling that the rabbis created this overarching category of oneg or pleasure, not only physical pleasure, but sort of what creates that sense of restorative Shabbat, enjoyable Shabbat, um, and that it was somewhat subjective. And we looked at a lot of different response on that, um, including conversations that we maybe don't want to necessarily have on Shabbat about our jobs um, or about politics. Um, and then we moved on the following week to the idea of simcha, of joy, um, that there's joy on holidays, um, there's joy in giving to others, 
that our joy is now, is like almost enriched or we feel more joy when we share with others. Um, and then we looked at the idea of joy as being a sense of fulfillment um, or presence, right? How hard, difficult it is to be present. Um, and that the rabbis understood this concept of simcha, maybe in preparing for prayer or in about to do mitzvot as, uh, as presence and um, fulfillment. Um, we then moved on to shame and embarrassment. And we looked at the idea of shame, both shaming individuals, but also the society. Um, how we become more aware of vulnerabilities of individuals, especially those who might feel more sidelined in society, and that the rabbis actually had models of takanot or enactments that they put into place to standardize things, so that those who came in um, who were feeling vulnerable, um, maybe because of economic status um, or other status, um, were able to be on par with others and sort of not have to feel um, embarrassed. We then focused on the idea of um, embarrassing others and using the using social media um, in terms of um, giving feedback or <laughs> bringing, bringing others to task and also how that has been effective in some ways in um, get abuse and challenging get abuse. And maybe that that is something um, right, that would be um, a, like a encouraged use, right? Even though it's usually discouraged. Um, last week, we looked at anger um, and we looked at the idea that the rabbis understood that anger is a powerful, powerful force. Um, and that's something that, although it starts internally, um, sorry that it's a little loud outside my block. Somewhere in Brooklyn. Um, that, that it's a powerful force that starts inside, but often there's a need of the individual to get it out of their system. Um, and that the ways, um, right, the, the more we let it take over us, the more we want to like, like get it out of our system and that people sometimes want to destroy things or hurt other people um, and think that, oh, that helps us feel better. Um, and the rabbis recognize that as, as like a very powerful emotion that people had. Um, I wanted to share that after last week's class, my, my daughter, who's eight, I shared that we were teaching about anger. Um, and she's like, and like, you know, she's like, oh, like basically, she basically said like she could, she could teach the class. Um, right, what to do with anger. I was like, yeah, what to do with anger. And like the rabbis talked about how bad, you know, like how when we get angry, um, you know, like we want to do this. Oh, so when you get angry, it's like, don't like kick or like do anything, especially if something's like you can break or it's really delicate. It's like, you can go and punch a pillow um, or you can like stamp as much as you want. Um, or you could just take some deep breaths. So it's like, Maybe next time she'll teach the class on anger. Um, but the rabbi sort of did have that hierarchy of like, we might want to do X, Y, or Z, um, but actually, right, that that it's an emotion that the more we let it take control, the less we're able to control ourselves um, unless we're able to make good decisions. Um, and so in that theme, we're going to go session five tonight will be a little bit different than the others in that it's, it's um, somewhat of an emotional state, somewhat of a psychological state. Um, but it has to do with this idea of being completely overtaken, also and overwhelmed um, by by a certain um, by a certain feeling. Um, I know that the sources have been shared. I'm gonna share my screen. Let me just pull up the source for a second. Um, and just to remind everybody, I know, can you see what I'm, what I'm sharing? Yeah. Okay. 
in the chat. Um, just to remind everybody, um, and I know Lila has mentioned this, um, feel free to put questions in the chat. And if you are a panelist, you can also um, raise your hand and then be unmuted and be part of the conversation and participate. Um, so it's great to have anyone um, who wants to participate. Um, so we're gonna look at this concept of the sort of two sides of a coin of yeshuv da'at and tiruf da'at. Yeshuv da'at um, usually is understood as settling or peace of mind after being kind of disturbed by something in a very deep way, um, gaining yeshuv da'at or gaining peace of mind, feeling settled. Um, we're then gonna look at the flip side of that, which would be tiruf da'at, which literally means from right people might be familiar with the word um, tref or taref, which literally means torn up. Um, so tirufda'at would be the opposite. It would be like when you're feeling so torn up, like your mind is just in a million different places. And right, it, it is a, there's sort of a scale of emotions that it could, or, or mental states that it could encompass. Um, we're going to look at two cases. Um, the first case is going to be the ways in which the halakha makes exceptions for a woman in labor. I'm going to give a little background to that. And the second case is going to be um, people who have um, illnesses um, and sort of how we worry about a person's state of mind and what information will do to a person's state of mind um, and how halakha looks at that. Um, so the, the first case is quite interesting. Um, as background, there's a general sense that, and many of you might be familiar with this, there's a general sense that we have a concept of pikuach nefesh, dochet shabbat that saving a life is the most important thing. And then whenever somebody is in danger, there's something that's potentially life-threatening that it's like Shabbat gets pushed aside, it doesn't exist. And we can break any rules of Shabbat in that case. Right? There could be many, many examples that could come up. And the rabbis discuss sort of what's the realm of potentially life-threatening, right? How broad does that, does that go? Um, and what are the like steps that one can take to get care versus like violating Shabbat completely, um, right? Asking someone in a rabbinical level, doing rabbinical prohibition, right? So there's a hierarchy. Um, what's interesting about the first case, about this case of, um, of a woman in labor on Shabbat is that on the one hand, although it's clear that she is um, perhaps in danger, right? That especially before modern medicine, um, even with modern medicine, unfortunately, if people read the statistics, um, that labor and like, post-delivery is actually quite um, a dangerous, a vulnerable and dangerous time for women, um, right? And um, that there was high maternal mortality, and it's unfortunately still even too high today in this country. Um, so that's something that we want to make sure a person gets the best medical care possible. What's fascinating about this case that we're going to look at is they're not only concerned about the medical care. It's not only about making sure that there is a doctor or a midwife or getting that person to the doctor or the midwife and doing the medically necessary things to make sure that the woman is safe and that the baby is safe and that everything happens um, in a safe way. Um, but actually we're gonna see that there's also a concern for how she's doing, how she thinks, what she thinks she needs what she thinks might help, um, even if it's not necessarily something that is medically needed and might actually be quite unnecessary. We're gonna see the first example of the Mishnah, which is very, very, very striking, um, especially if you're familiar with right, the rules of Shabbat. 
So the first source, which you should have it's on the screen, and if you want to look at it on your own, um, this is from the Mishnah, in, uh, based on the Mishnah in Shabbat, um, that says that you can light, um, you can light a candle um, for a woman who is in labor, even if she asks for it. And they're sort of going back and forth about this lighting a candle. Okay, is the lighting a candle, um, right? Is the lighting a candle so that the midwife can see better? Um, or is it about something else? So Amarma, um, okay, if the woman needed a lamp, right, obviously, right, if they needed it to see better, to do the door, like, of course they would light it. So why, like, it's so obvious, why did the Mishnah have to teach me this? And this is a classic question of like, you don't have to tell me obvious things. The Mishnah is not in the habit of saying like necessarily all the things, even though it does a lot of them. So it's an interesting technique. But why did it need to tell me that? But I know that whenever like there's a life-saving thing, I can violate Shabbat. So what does this add? What information does this add? This is no tzricha. It was needed because, what about a suma? What about a blind woman? A blind woman is in labor and she says, I need a light, light a candle while I'm in labor and delivering this baby. And you might say, she can't see. Like the midwife could just say, right? We're not talking about lying now. We're going to talk about that towards the end, right? You don't like say, yeah, I lit it and then tell the woman, no, I didn't, right? Because somehow she'll know, right? We don't, the, the, the rabbis do not even suggest that, right? What is, how is that going to help this blind woman? And they say, um, right, we might think it's forbidden. Kamash um, Malan, this comes to teach you, the Mishnah came to teach you, it's actually there to settle her mind, that one can light this lamp on Shabbat, this woman in labor, just to settle her mind. Now, what might this do? And this, this, the, it's going to play out sort of how, how she's understanding this. Right, Svara, she's gonna think, okay, if anything needs to be done, she's gonna do it for me. Now, there's a couple of ways of understanding this, right? Is it that, oh, anything I ask for, they're gonna take me seriously and they're gonna do it, right? As a patient advocate, right? Mishnah talking, you are talking about like patient advocacy at a very vulnerable time. Um, or is it that, no, she's really worried about the logistics, right? Like the midwife's not going to be able to see. And like she has to light the candle um, right, so that she can see what she's doing. Um, any any thoughts that people want to put in the chat or they have like, what do you send it, it one more than the other before we look at the sources? Um, the title of the class might give you a sense of how significant the state of mind is. But like what's giving her the peace of mind? Okay, so how far can you take it? Ozzy, what do you mean, what do you, what do you mean by that? Can you um, elaborate on the question? Uh, I mean, how far do you take her needs into account? I mean, if they're totally unreasonable, you have to cater okay. into that if it's if she may be Mahala Shabbos. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Right. That's a great question. And it's really fascinating to have this test case of a person who clearly doesn't need the light saying, I need the light while I'm in labor. Right. Light it. And then we're allowed to do it. Um, okay, certainty in an uncertain situation makes you feel better. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, labor, like you said, it's a very scary situation, but if she's in her home or surrounded by people 
she she knows like maybe like seeing familiar surroundings or familiar faces would be calming and and like supportive right so it could be like even if this case of this woman who the light is not benefiting her by seeing it she maybe feels that she's in a supportive um supportive environment um, so this question of how far is really is really interesting. We're going to look at some of those questions as we go through the sources of how far we actually take this in practice um, and how much we should sort of minimize and try to do things in a rabbinic way or try to like tell the woman, well, we're going to do it this way and that way and let's not violate Shabbat. And this doesn't necessarily seem to be what's being suggested here, but we all might be familiar with that sort of um, in these types of things that might not seem medically necessary. So Tosafot, right, on, on this um, part of the Gemara, says, what does it mean to settle her mind? And he says, he's trying to draw a distinction now, the Tosafot draws a distinction um, between what we're used to as a life-saving measure and like what's going on. So Tosafot points out, even though in the final chapter of Yoma, about, there's a whole section on Pukuach Nefesh, they're on saving a life. And right, if somebody um, says they need to eat, Right? And that we might need medical experts in that situation. Um, that's an interesting section so yeah, to learn on its own, that it's not so simple, right? But that ideally you would have medical experts um, right, to actively feed. If the person needs to eat, we don't stop them, right? But to actually actively feed someone, perhaps you need medical experts. Um, but here, it seems like it's permitted to violate Shabbat by lighting a candle just because of Yeshuv Da'at, just to settle her mind. And he says, well, a laboring woman is different than this woman who, than this other case of um, somebody who is not feeling well and needs to eat. Um, because a laboring woman is more susceptible to being endangered through pachad, through fear, through anxiety. If she fears or is anxious that they're actually not doing what she needs properly and they're not taking sufficient care of her, um, her sense, her peace of mind, or her sense that she's in a safe, as some of you were hinting at, in a right, secure place, that people are doing whatever, whatever is needed, any means necessary, um, that will affect her um, more than somebody who is ill due to hunger. Um, right, so it's a question, right, so as you thought about Safek, but is this a doubt of Pikuach Nefesh? We're gonna develop that idea of like, what's the, um, what's the danger here? Um, the Rambam, um, but it seems like the Tosavad here say um, right, this idea of feeling secure that other people, right, minimizing any fear that she might have beyond doing the medical things, um, minimizing any anxieties or fear that she might have, that people are, are listening to her and doing what she needs, whatever they need, and paying attention to her needs. Um, the Rambam um, adds some of the things that can be done on Shabbat here. Right, some of the practical things are, right, once she's in a stage of labor, this is a big discussion of like at what point this is. I think we do this earlier on, we'll see what Hank does, we do this earlier rather than later um, because things can progress, um, right? So it doesn't have to be so late in the process, um, right? That we can violate any, right, for sure she's in Sakana and we can do any by anything that we need to do on Shabbat, right, we do for this person. Um, you can call a midwife from a distant place and you can cut the umbilical cord. And if she needs a light, you can light a candle. And then the Ramam says, right? But even if she's blind, because a light is a calming influence, um, even if she does not see it, right? And if she needs oil and it's brought to her, right? 
So some things are done in a rabbinic way, right, with a shinoi, um, even if she needs them. But this light, anything that's like to settle her mind, it's like maybe even biblical violations of lighting a candle can be done um, so that um, so she can feel um, peace of mind. Um, the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch also brings this idea in um, and says a woman in labor in general is like a cholash yesh right? Again, reaffirming this idea that yes, there is real medical danger here in this case. And we violate Shabbat, right? Whatever is needed. Again, the word that's right, we call the chachama, the midwife. Um, I love that the midwife is called the chachama. Um, and we light a lamp, a lamp for her even though she is blind. And then he also adds this caveat of nevertheless, if you can do something with a shinoi, you should do it, right? So we see this tension here um, in these sources um, between on the one hand, by any means necessary, right? We have, okay, by any means necessary for clear medical need. Then we have things that she needs, but maybe they're not urgent and we can do it in a rabbinic way or with a shinoi with a change that we're not like violating Shabbat, right? If we can minimize the Shabbat violations for some things, we try to do them. And then we have this case of that's brought down not only as this like weird example in the Gemara, but it's brought down in the Rambam and the Shofar Aruch as this example of the importance of Yishudat um, or peace of mind um, for this woman in labor. And that maybe a candle being lit on Shabbat is like, the, it's actually one of the two things mentioned in the Torah that you can't do on Shabbat is lighting a candle. Um, um, and it seems like this, this sense of um, this woman feeling on the one hand supported, um, on the one hand, her needs, whatever she's asking for are being met. Even if we might say that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> like that's not rational. That's not a rational need. Um, that's not a response that we're being encouraged to right, give to this woman and say, that's not very rational right now. Like you don't need that right now. So let's, let's focus on the things you do need. Um, or that that actually is going to um, cause her to possibly feel really anxious and concerned and then worried that like maybe her real needs, perhaps her real needs are not being met. Um, if anyone has any additional, we're going to jump into more of the sources, but I want to pause here. I mean, I framed it in a certain way in terms of her, the significance of her yeshuv of her peace of mind. Um, any other senses of like why this extreme example of violating Shabbat um, might be okay here. Um, like, what are we worried about? Given that it's clear that like there's a tension between keeping Shabbat and taking care of this person and making sure that she's okay and the baby's okay. Yeah. Um, I have a question, which is like, in how um. Is this still relevant today, basically, when we have like such better health, health care and health outcomes? I know it's mm -hmm. like childbirth is still like extremely dangerous situation, but um, I can think of so many reasons why mm. like someone like panicking when they're like losing blood or like. I can think of so many reasons why uh like like for healthcare reasons you would want someone to be calm in that situation yeah. um but it i'm not sure how justifiable it still is right so 
because we maybe have better health care um, or people understand the medical processes better and we sort of can have more technical conversations about things. Um, we're going to look at some modern responsa um, that, that look at this question of like, how do we take this idea of number one, right, see, like doing anything necessary medically, but also this additional idea of the woman saying, the woman in labor saying, I need this right now, even though it violates Shabbat. And like, how much do we give into that versus how much do we try to say, like, this is not a rational thing. Like we can do it this way. We can do it that way. Um, so we're going to look at some of, some of those um, sources. Um, one question that also comes up because you mentioned hanging is, is this a test case in any other way? Like the toast book tries to say like, this is different than a lot of those other cases that we looked at of, um, right, taking care of people medically because there's the mental state and then there's the physical need, but they're so intertwined in this case that we're gonna worry about both. Um, and that seems to be what, what they're working with. And the question is, can you apply that then to other cases? This is a test case for other examples of other illnesses or other um, medical situations, or is it only in this case? So we're gonna look at um, two modern questions. Um, the first one, is clearly if the woman is in labor, right? She can drop, she can drive to the hospital, she can get driven to the hospital, right? She can violate Shabbat. Um, but what about if she wants someone else with her? And someone in her, her husband, right? The question that, that the Ramosha Feinstein got was, right? A woman who wants to travel in a taxi on Shabbat to the hospital. Now, of course, her husband also could drive her if he needed to, right? But again, some people try to do things in it, either they didn't have a car, we're trying to maybe not violate Shabbat in extreme way. Right? These are questions that also come up, um, right? Because this you should not. She doesn't want to go alone. She needs someone with her and either her husband or her mother to go with her. Um, and he says it is permitted in this case that the family member um, can violate Shabbat on this person, on this woman's behalf. Um, and he compares it to similar to lighting a candle, which is permitted even when there's no essential need um, and only um, due to her, you should die. Right? The idea of only, um, right, is not meaning like, right, clearly that's not only, merely if, if we're, if, right, if it's being acknowledged as halakhically significant. Um, so is it the same? Um, he says, I responded that clearly in that case, um, so now Rav Moshe Feinstein is going to take it. So the question is, can we compare these two cases? Um, yes. So there's a lot of different opinions on um, getting to the hospital and how one should get to the hospital and arrange things possibly in advance um, to not violate Shabbat if, if, um, not, if, if it's not necessary. Um, what's interesting is that um, there seems to be this idea here that Rav Moshe is bringing, and we're going to see um, right, some other sources as well, um, right, that, right, you need to do what you need to do, right? Um, so thank you for bringing those, those post -game. Um So Rav Moshe was asked this question about a family member also going, um, and he says, in that case, the case of the candle, every person would fear that they won't see what she needs. Even if midwife says, I'm an expert and I don't need the extra candle, certainly she's allowed to not believe her and just say like, actually, can you just like make me feel better? 
and just even though I know you're the expert in the room, like I'm the one giving birth here, I would feel a lot better if you did this. I think it's needed. Um, can you please do this? Right. So a very strong case of patient advocacy. Um, um, the Magen Abraham does question, right, why we need to shoot that. Um, I didn't bring that source here, but he's the one that sort of pushes back on all of this and says, like, isn't this just a practical thing to, for the midwife to see? Like, even the blind, blind woman says, I need the midwife to see. So light some extra candles. I want to make sure you have everything you need to take care of me. But then Rav Moshe writes, in any case, according to the law, since we have seen that a woman giving birth may become to okay, endanger herself, right? Because of fear or anxiety, right? Who can rely on these chilukim, on these differentiations, when there's actually a concern of pikuach nefesh, right? If we're going to say that this is actually a real concern, right? this question of um, her state of mind is a real concern, um, then we're not going to quibble about it. Therefore, if she says, I'm afraid by myself, right? Even if there's not necessarily, it's been explained to her, right? So Rav Moshe, it's interesting, does sort of like do that dance that we did not see in the Gemara of like, first tell the person, like, don't worry, we have all the rights we need. Like, we don't actually need this, right? And so this is where um, these both pastoral and halakha questions come into play. Meaning how much of the, you know, um, this is not a rational thing. You'll be fine. You don't really need this. How much of that should we be doing? Um, are, the, are the rabbis, right, are these postings saying, despite the test case? Or in how much of the life, we don't ask too many questions. We don't make her feel like her needs are not being met. Um, we want her to be in the best possible state of mind, um, feeling supported and feeling like all her needs are being met. Um, right, and so that, that, is being played out here in Ramosha as well. And we're going to see that in some of the, in the next response. Um, right, so there seems to be a little bit of a dance going on here. Um, and again, this is not a case where, right, they have to rush to the hospital and everyone has to, as you mentioned, like a rush, I said, like, if you, if you need to go, you need to go, right? This is sort of where those middle ground cases, where it's not, this, this, on the one hand, the urgency is not felt there, but she's feeling that urgency. Um, so even if it's been explained, um, in that case, there is a concern and her husband or mother must chapel with her. And even if she goes to the hospital before she's in a, in a wailing from labor pains, meaning even if it's like not when she's about to deliver the baby, but earlier on in the stage of labor, we've talked about the significance of like how severe does the situation have to be for her state of mind to be significant, right? Do we have to be like towards the, right? towards the delivery or can even earlier on the process really affect her. He says, even if it's earlier on and even if it's far, he should also travel with her because although she's not in danger at this moment, it's possible it's a very volatile situation. Things can change in a moment, right? Um, and I think that's also part of um, what's going on here, right? The volatility of the situation um, and it could increase. And then there would be really a concern, right? If she's not feeling supported um, and she's panicked and right, then that could be really a scary situation and things might not right turn out well. Um, the Encyclopedia Chati uh, um, which is an, an, like an incredible resource, um, has a whole section on childbirth. I took like a very little snippet um, for this class. 
And it says, Viajas Leoletet, in connection to the childbearing or to the woman in labor, um, all laboring women right, are in the category of danger. And all prohibitions, all Isurim are pushed aside because of Pikoach Nefesh. And Yeter Aken, over it and above this, we've seen specifically, right, even more than other people in the category, other types of individuals who are um, in danger, and we have Pikoach Nefesh for them, um, that we're specifically concerned for women in labor. Um, that she will not have tiruf da'at, that she won't all of a sudden panic, um, she won't freak out, um, she won't be overly anxious, um, right? And that's not a state that there could be a really, right, add danger to the dangerous um, situations. Um, so just want to pause to see if people have questions before we move on to the, um, to the last tushuva in this section, which is going to require a little bit of introduction, and we'll explore some of these um, topics more. Is this a new Bit of a new idea. I know people are probably familiar with the idea, like if you need to get out of the ambulance, go. Um, right, but this question of um, tending to the emotional state, um, right? It seems like a very modern, patient-centered um, approach, um, which I think just reminds us that like human nature um, has not changed all that much since the time of the Mishnah the Talmud, uh, right? Midwives have been delivering babies for thousands of years and probably like understood uh, the importance of Right, the state of mind and like how the emotional strength was going to be called on in that moment, um, right? And and feeling like things are being taken. I think it also puts extra pressure on those um, like caring for the woman as well, right? If we're worried about her emotional state, we're less likely to miss anything, right? We're less likely to overlook any needs. Oh, that's not so important. Um, and we hear that so often that um, unfortunately a lot of the um, comorbidities that happen after childbirth or a lot of um, right, the um, morbidity and mortalities because like women's pain or like what they were saying was not listened to. Like women will say like, this is not okay or like actually no. And like, it's not, it's often not listened to. Um, and so this sort of like reinforces that state of like, there's a lot going on. It's a very volatile situation. And like even things like we're just gonna like go all in. Of course, there's that caveat, though, that we've seen of, wait, but if we sort of know as this rational people in the situation, right, a little bit patronizing, like, we know it's not so important, like, how much do we try to convince her that it's not so important? Um, or are we just supposed to go all in? Yeah, Lilinus. Um, I really like how it kind of opens the door to um, me mental health um, like crises being treated the, the same as like physical health crises. Yes. Um, and it reminded me of an article I was reading about, I had no idea about this before, that um, there, there's like a very, very high rate of like post-traumatic stress disorder um, after like not even like just a lot of, of people who have like hospital, not even necessarily yeah. so complicated births and yeah. you know even if she it's not like when you were saying like about the midwife the midwife like she's the expert in the room but like actually even if she is the expert like we, we need to we need to have these extra um reassurances yeah. yeah um yes thank you for sharing that um and I think it's one of the things where we'll see in this last source 
that there's big um, giant breaks that are put on this idea. Um, and I, having read these sources over the years, um, I still don't really like, understand um, we'll think about maybe it's sociological, how we've changed the, the birthing process. Um, but there's many, many sources, um, Moshe was asked right about the husband going along. Um, there's many, many sources where the question is, um, can the husband be the one who's helping the wife during delivery and right, basically being the delivery or being her coach um, during the delivery, even though it's a time when she might be in the, and there might be issues of touch. Um, Right. So on the one hand, right, Nida is an extremely serious prohibition. On the other hand, right, we'll look at some, we'll look at one of the sources, but many of the sources will sort of say, um, try to convince her otherwise, try to make sure she has a backup, um, right? Like sort of front load the situation so that as much as possible, we don't like try to get in a situation where she says, I need my husband to be that person. Um, but again, like society since the late 70s, right, has changed very much on that front. Um, and that in many couples, it's sort of expected, um, right, that the husband would be present um, and, and um, be in that situation. Um, and sort of how do we, um, how does the halakha respond to that, especially with these sources? Um, and it's not necessarily uh, an obvious answer, right? Like many poskim will not respond. Oh, of course, if you can light a candle and if you can jump in the car, then we can also um, have the husband do whatever he needs. Um, and that's not actually um, the response that's written in many places. Um, I brought um, Rav Hinken here, um, who brings um, a little bit of um, the background to that question. Um, so he says, if the woman, this is part of a larger teshuva from B'day Benim, I put the link here, it's all on Safari. It's, it's I think mostly translated if people wanna read it on their own. Um, if the woman is afraid, there's a whole footnote here where um, Rav Hinkin discusses like those who try to minimize and try to like say, like, don't get her to the point where she's, where she says like, this is what I need. And if I don't have this, it's not going to work and try to like come up with other solutions. Um, but no, she wants her husband to be present with her. We don't need to find grounds to permit him to be with her in the delivery room. And in my humble opinion, not only can he be there, right? Not only Mutar, um, he must be there because um, of the threat to her life and her sages have held the fear of a birthing mother to be a danger to life. And we can even violate Shabbat to prevent her fear as we saw and then he quotes right what we've previously learned in the Mishnah and the Gemara. Even lighting a candle on Shabbat for a woman who cannot see the candle and is only concerned for a possible complication is permitted in order to comfort her mind, even though she has no physical benefit from it. The rule is the same here, that if she fears being without her husband, he is obligated to be with her. And this, in short, is halakha. Um, he goes down into um, right, some discussion of a, a lot of the background, um, because this was not the obvious answer that was being given in most cases, um, and which is why I think he felt the need to, to bring this forward. Um, he again says, right, it doesn't need to be so late in the stage, right? It can be earlier on in labor. Um, um, right, so we're gonna, we'll talk about the, the, the touch question, right? He doesn't discuss the, um, the touch directly. 
Um, there are other concerns there of actually just being present for the birth and like um, witnessing the baby, um, which are all, those are three separate questions, right? Being in the room, um, right? Assisting in some way, um, and then um, right, watching or witnessing the baby coming out um, are all different concerns. Um, he explains, but I think to your question, I think there are, right, there most, most post-scheme who have written about this in writing will say, right, that the husband may not be like the coach in a physical way, um, despite what we've seen in the sources previously of the other violations of Shabbat, um, right, that, that violations of Nida might be different. Um, but I think in a one-on-one -on -one situation um, that people are receiving um, different stuff. Um, and part of bringing these sources forward is just to help us frame that question as well and think about that question, especially for those who it feels like that would actually be um, right, significant to them. So what's interesting here is that um, it explains two different types of um, tiruf da'at. Um, the first is when the person actually feels like, okay, I'm physically afraid, like something is really bad is going to happen. And right, if this doesn't, this doesn't happen, right, I'm actually going to die. Um, right. So that's one settling of the mind. Um, right. Um, the second type um, is when an ill person is so distressed and worried that their words will not be upheld. We're stepping aside a little bit from the um, laboring woman just to get some background. Right. There's two of that. Uh, right? If a person feels like unrelated to their body, um, for example, somebody who is on their deathbed and they feel like their time is limited. Um, Um, so that, um, the idea I brought there is that maybe there's certain things we can do so that he doesn't have tear with dad or she doesn't have tear with dad, um, knowing that people are not going to uphold their final wishes, um, right? There's no life-threatening danger at all in the second type. So for the Rambam did not permit even rabbinic acts of like acquisition or giving or selling and buying, um, through this. Uh, we've also gained, according to the other Rishonim, who disagree with the Rambam and think like the Rashbam, that even in places where an active acquisition is necessary, it's permissible um, from someone who is imminently dying um, in order for their mind right, to not have tiruf that. Um, but even then, they only permitted rabbinic level violations of Shabbat, right? Because it's not actual sakana, right? It's not life-threatening danger, so we wouldn't have biblical violations of Shabbat, right? And he brings some um, example here. For example, um, uh, your idea 339 has many of these rules. So if you want to just go over there or Chaim. Um, somebody who's imminently dying is permitted to issue divorce on Shabbat, right? which normally we do not do that on Shabbat. Um, so that their mind, they would not have to with that. Um, but in general, it was only rabbinic level um, prohibitions. But what's interesting is that the woman, the truth dot of the woman seems to be of the first type. Um, and not the second type, right? It's not merely a like, so that they'll feel peace of mind and that they'll settle in peace, um, but not actually in a danger, but it seems to be of the first type, um, right? And he, he towards the end um, of Hankin says, um, in my humble opinion, right? Um, God and the sages recognize how a birthing mother is different from someone with a life-threatening illness. An ill person just needs to rest and eat what they're given um, and healing. So this might also, we can think about how this might apply to others. 
Um, Rapinkin does discuss this of whether the Ramban might think this is a test case for others, like whether this is could be used in other cases, um, or whether it's specific to a Reddit because of, um, we can explain here why it might be different. Um, the birthing mother who must herself deliver the baby, right? It's not that, right, the body needs to do so much, um, which is hard work. It's, it's hard labor, incomparable to any other challenge in the life of a man or woman as is me. Um, and um, if she pushes when she should be resting or does not push when she should push, she would be exhausting her strength and actually endangering herself. And she requires settled mind in order to listen to the instructions of the midwife or expert during the birth. If she does not have a settled mind um, during the time of the contractions, meaning earlier on, she'll also not during the time she actually needs to deliver the baby. Thus, a woman exhausts her strength um, if she does not have the emotional calm to rest while she's experienced pain, um, right? Also, he notes here that fear of pain um, is actually a big, right? That's also a huge anxiety and fear, right? The fear of extreme pain, which is right, very present in this situation. Um, um, and perhaps that's why the Rambam also says we can um, do it earlier on, right? Because of the eventuality that she's going to have to deliver the baby. Um, so that's um, our first case, which I know is the majority of the sources, just to develop this idea of yishuv da'at, of peace of mind, and yiruv da'at, of what it means um, to be panicked um, or anxiety in, in this particularly in these particular cases. Um, now, this was a um, medical case, which is why it goes into those different directions and why there's so much gray area. Um, There's a very interesting source also on violating Shabbat. Um, this is um, in the introduction of sort of the second area that we're going to look at. Um, that the Gemara asks if a child gets locked behind a door, like a small child gets left behind a door and they can't get out, and they're really um, right. They're scared. Right? They're by themselves on the other side of the door. Um, right? What do we do? And so um, I put the full Shulchan Aruch here in the notes. That's why I did a Word document if people wanted to look at the at where the Mishnah Bura is commenting on here. Um, um, but one can, like, one can, if the child falls out of well, um, and anything like you can violate Shabbat, um, even in a way that's possibly constructive, right? Not just destructive. Um, and anything that's like that. And the Mishnah Bura here says, for example, if the door is locked in front of a child, we break the door. And take them out, even though um, it splits the the door and appears like a forbidden Shabbat activity to make planks or chips for kindling. Right, you're sort of making um, wood. Even so, the breaking is permitted, lest the child become extremely frightened and God forbid die from fear, um, or maybe come like confused. Right, the child will become disoriented, maybe, and like you know, in those scary moments, like who knows what could happen. Right? And so this is an extreme urgent situation. Perhaps. And we don't say it's possible to like make some noise outside the door and just like keep the child talking and like let them know that we're there. We try to distract them, right? Um, until somebody comes with the key, um, right? That actually one should um, break the door. Now one would of course use their best judgment in these cases, um, but this is another example of sort of where fear um, is a motivator in the situation, right? The anxiety and like the deep fear in the situation 
um, allows Shabbat to be violated. Um, the last source is we're going to look at um, this idea of tirufdat um, from Rabbi Jason Weiner's book on practical medical decision making. Um, a question of are we concerned for tirufdat um, of uh, panicking or like kind of um, tearing up someone's mind or throwing them off completely, like a deep sense of throwing them off um, by sharing medical information. Um, we're we're going to spend a few minutes on this. This is a deep topic that I think um, people might have had the opportunity to learn with um, of Jason Weiner, and people can definitely look um, at his book and see it there. And it's, it's not an easy question, um, but important to sort of think about um, through this lens and also just establishes um, this question, right? How much are we concerned um, for somebody's state of mind? I'm gonna share a different source. Let me know if you can see it. People can see it. Um, so he shares a story. Um, Rob Levy Meyer of blessed memory, my predecessor at, wait, at Cedar Sinai Medical Center relates the following anecdote in his book, Second Chances. Dr. Mark, a psychiatrist on staff at a hospital was diagnosed with a terminal illness. His attending physician felt that it would not be in Dr. Mark's best interest to know how much time he had left to live. But Dr. Mark persisted saying, I'm a psychiatrist. I can handle any news you're going to give me. I want the whole truth and I want it now. So his physician told him, you know, you've got cancer and it's stage four. I don't think you have more than six or seven months left. Dr. Mark thought he assimilated all this information well and that he could grasp it intellectually, but he was wrong. Soon after hearing this, he fell into severe depression and soon after that he died. Um, Right, this question of delivering medical news at right, certain times in certain ways, how much information um, right, is a huge medical ethics question. And we're just gonna touch, touch the surface of it um, through thinking about this idea of um, how much we're concerned for that, or how much um, do we, the rabbis or halakha, um, give a sense of a person's state of mind um, affecting their physical state, right? Their ability to deal with um, whatever medical challenges they have. Um, right, so uh, Jason writes here, right? Truth-telling um, poses a very common and challenging issue in healthcare, um, right? And that although, right, there was a time that maybe people didn't, it was customary not to share as much information or disclose as much of serious diagnosis, right? Now, Right? There is much more of right, that people are given the truth. Um, it's become generally accepted in contemporary healthcare that patients have a right to know all relevant information um, related to their health condition. Right? Does Jewish law support such a stance of complete disclosure? Does it advocate limiting truth-telling in situations? Um, right? So on the one hand, truth is very, very important. Right? Um, but there are many biblical stories um, the very painful or shocking information can have a significant impact on physical health and well-being, right? The idea of Sarah, right? Sarah is a prime example of that, um, her death after the Akedah. Um, this is similarly, there's a fundamental concept in Jewish law known as Tiruf Hadat, or acute mental anguish, um, right? The Jewish law sometimes permits violation, violation of even biblical commandments, right? In order to put um, a patient's peace of mind, right? And we saw um, some of those examples. 
Um, I want to bring some more of those examples in the um, in the slides. Um, right, so for example, the Shulchan Aruch rules that if a close family member of a dangerously ill patient has died, the patient should not be informed of this bad news since it may cause great anguish and exacerbate their illness. Um, right, even if that patient might not be able to do any of the traditional mourning practices, um, right, and maybe the other family members will have to avoid mourning practices. Um, right, maybe maybe there are certain situations um, where one right should not share that news, um, and maybe even actively lie um, if they ask their rescue by the patient. Um, so there's been um, right a, a difference of opinion, um, right noted here in the post game, right that some have um, counseled against, while others have said that right it might be impossible or counterproductive, right. Um, because now patients not only, right, the mental state is also dealt with, right, meaning patients not only receive physical care, um, but also, right, receive mental health care and are, um, right, to bring them through the process. Um, so um, he discusses maybe it should be done in stages, um, right, meaning the idea of caring um, for the medical state, for the mental state um, of the person, um, right, the conclusion um, being here that it's um, on a case-by-case -case basis, um, right? That that we we that those in medical ethics decisions and doctors um, and halacha take the mental state of the person um, or the peace of mind of the person and and um, as to be um, something to be seriously considered, right? As affecting their ability to take care, like to be cared for, also physically. Um, so I know we only touched on um, just a little bit. Of, um, of the idea of Yishuv Da'an and Yishuv Da'an, but you can see from the sources that actually um, it touches on a wide number of situations that affect um, both the beginning of life um, and end of life, right? How much a person's peace of mind and how much a fear um, of that they will not have peace of mind um, or not be listened to or not be advocated for um, and that it's a, not an easy, uh, it's not a clear cut right, cases. Um, even though the Mishnah we first learned seems like it's so so clear cut, many of the things we looked at is that right, it's somewhat of a delicate balance, right? How do we judge the situation? How do we judge the person's state? Um, and then how do we act accordingly um, on a case by case basis, right? Which which requires much more delicacy and care, um, both in knowing the halacha but also knowing the individuals um, and what they particularly need in that situation, right? What would be um, useful to them. Um, and what they're facing. Um, wanted to thank everybody for joining um, for the series. Um, I think all of the recordings for the previous four sessions and the source sheet should be should be on the website. Um, it's been wonderful learning with you. Um, and well, thank you. I enjoyed like for so masterfully not only administrating but also it's really been a joy to learn together for these sessions. And I appreciate all of your um, participation and comments, and it's been great to learn together. Um, 
And I hope that I hope folks will join next week to learn about the Azharat as we start to get ready for Shavuot, which is closely upon us. Yes, thank you so much, Rabbanit Sasson. This has been a really amazing, um, a really amazing series. Uh, halacha through a whole new lens of like emotions and psychological experience. Um, before we go, as Rabbanit Sasson said, you can sign up for um for her class next week at the same time. Uh, also, as a reminder, our summer kollel applications are due tomorrow and there are a few spots left in our middle school and high school girls summer programs as well so any teens in your life let them know uh, to finish up their applications um wishing everyone a great week and thank you so much thank you have a good night everybody